you have to be able to one, identify the right problem to work on, and then two, creatively craft a solution to that problem. And three, teach yourself the things that you need to know in order to take that to the next level. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that... After watching Jack Ryan with my wife, the Amazon series based on a Tom Clancy character, we checked out a short documentary series featuring former operators and analysts who worked for the CIA. And that's where I first saw our guest, Nick McKinley, the founder and CEO of Deliver Fund and the man who inspired the hashtag, the real Jack Ryan. When Nick was growing up, he wanted to be Batman, just a normal guy who used his resources to change the world and worked really hard to build himself up to be the catalyst that would change the world. And Nick pretty much got as close to being Batman as anyone gets, a CIA special agent. He served as a member of a special unit focused on providing unique capabilities and expertise regardless of threat or environment in response to the critical operational needs of the intelligence community as a part of an overseas unit conducting complex operations in non-permissive countries. That pretty much sounds like a CIA description. But like Batman, Nick did start out with some privilege. He didn't have the entire fortune of Wayne Enterprises behind him, but he didn't need it. He says the ultimate privilege is good parenting, and he had really great parents. Nick was also a United States Air Force pararescueman, or PJ, for 10 years. But exceptional dedication in the military alone isn't what got him recruited to the CIA, although that certainly didn't hurt. He later worked as a consultant for Fortune 10 investment banks, where he demonstrated a penchant for finding solutions to hard problems, and these diverse experiences are what made him so appealing for high-stakes operations in high-threat countries. But this isn't even the most awesome impact that Nick has made to protect our country and other places around the world. After being exposed to the human trafficking epidemic that is very alive today, Nick was moved to found Deliver Fund, an organization that equips, trains, and advises law enforcement around the world on how they can arrest and end and destroy human trafficking and human traffickers. This is a humongous business, the human trafficking industry. Human traffickers not only trade in lives, but they are making 42 plus billion dollars a year wrecking people's lives through human trafficking. And it needs to end. And it's not just a global epidemic. It is happening right here in the backyard of the United States of America, in your town, in your city. And that is where Nick and his team at Deliver Fund are placing most of their focus. They are working 
yes, globally, but they are also working locally right here in the United States to end human trafficking. Together with law enforcement, they work to counter human trafficking, eliminate this horrible market, and really save lives. And you and I, we can go support them, and I've never done this before. Uh, On this week's episode, I'm going to work with Facebook somehow to try to start a a donation, a fundraise for Deliver Fund via Facebook, but you can also go directly to their page at deliverfund.org forward slash donate and donate directly there. And I'm going to kick things off with a $100 donation to Deliver Fund. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Nick McKinley, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. I first saw you. Uh, my my wife and I were watching the Amazon Prime Jack Ryan series, and <laughs> on Facebook and um, and all of these social media sites. In fact, even on Amazon Prime, there was like this little mini docu series featuring different people that had pri- previous careers as operators or analysts or both with the CIA kind of giving a little bit of insight on what on on what it was like plus what they're doing now and I thought to myself man that would be a fascinating guy to have a conversation with and here we are you know I mean it just kind of happened um I we you know we connected after I interviewed Flynn Cochran and uh and so I'm really honored to have you on the show to share your story, to share what you're up to now. So welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. I always kick things off with the origin story. And, and I'm going to use a quote to start our conversation. This quote comes from, uh, I think, a guy named Philip Sweet. I have no idea who Philip Sweet is. I just typed in dream, quotes about dreams. And this one came up. And I, I thought it resonated with me and resonated with what I've uh, researched about your life story thus far. So this quote says, stay true to yourself, yet always be open to learn. Work hard and never give up on your dreams, even when no one else believes that they can come true but you. These are not cliches, but real tools you need, no matter what you do in life, to stay focused on your path. And uh, so there's, there's a bunch of stuff in there that I've that I, I want to cover, you know, with regard to staying true to yourself, being open to learn, working hard, other people believing in your potential, and staying focused. So when you were as a, when you were a kid growing up, what did you want to be? What were what were your aspirations? What did I want to be? Batman. <laughs> I mean, basically yeah. that's it. You know, I mean, you you look at all these different superheroes, and they all have an unfair advantage. They were born with something, you know, they got infused with metal in their bones. They come from a different planet where they, you know, are, are considered superhuman here. But, but what was Batman? Batman was a guy for, uh, yes, he had access to resources that most people don't have, but, but he was just a normal guy who used those resources to change the world and worked really hard to build himself up to be the catalyst that would change the world. So, of course, when you look at all the different superheroes, the best is clearly Batman. 
You know, that that's actually funny that you mentioned that and the way you answered that question, because you do, and as we will learn, um, you do have a tilt towards saving people, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, <laughs> just a, uh, it's been just a, a slight tilt. <laughs> a, uh, definitely a, a professional hazard of mine. <laughs> uh, for some reason, yeah, I, I am really bad about focusing on things within my inner circle. And I tend to always be looking out beyond that. Was there a moment in your childhood growing up where you saw this a selfless act done on behalf of another that stuck with you or resonated with you or was a seed that was planted in you? I, I can't narrow it down to one. I'm fortunate enough that, that uh, I've got phenomenal parents. So they, they modeled that to me every single day. And the people that they surrounded themselves with modeled that as well. So, you know, I, I grew up in Montana. It's a pretty darn good place to grow up. Uh, you don't lock your front door. There's very little crime. Uh, the whole concept of race isn't even really something you think about, you know, intellectually, clearly you understand it, but you know, you're, you're in civics class in high school and they're talking about racism. You're like, Oh, that's that thing that happened back in the like fifties and sixties. Cause that's, that's not real anymore. I mean, it's Montana is kind of a utopia. So when you grow up in that kind of environment, you, it, you learn the, the true meaning of values. And it wasn't until I left Montana when I joined the Air Force, so I was like, holy smokes, there's an actual real world out here. And, and it's nothing like what I experienced growing up. What, what, did, what did you learn about learning growing up from your parents or from the environment around you and your capacity you know, to learn? Yeah, my mom uh, makes a joke, and it's only half tongue-in-cheek, I think, where she said that her... Uh, her goal for me, uh, her and my father's goal was for me to be completely self-reliant. And now they say they did too good of a job. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that, I mean, that was the way I was raised. It was, Oh, you've got a problem. Go figure it out. Uh, there was no helicopter parenting. There was no, uh, you know, there, there were, there were very natural consequences. You know, you, you missed the bus because you got up too late in the winter at Montana. That hurts when you got to walk to school. Mm. Uh, so like, hey, strap on those Sorel snow boots and uh, that, that warm coat that we got you. And, you know, it's a mile and a half to school. Good luck, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so that was very much the way that I was raised. And that when you're raised in that type of environment, you have to learn to be resourceful, which obviously comes from creativity and you have to be able to rapidly learn. And I get asked all the time, what makes a good special operator in the military? What makes a good operative at the CIA or, or one of the intelligence agencies? And really what it comes down to is, is creativity, curiosity, grit, and the ability to rapidly learn. Because if you can't teach yourself something, especially in these days where we've got the University of YouTube, uh, if you can't teach yourself something and you are relying on other people to teach you things, then you're a dinosaur and you're going to go extinct. You have to be able to, one, identify the right problem to work on, and then two, creatively craft a solution to that problem, and three, 
teach yourself the things that you need to know in order to take that to the next level. Mm. If you don't do that, if you don't do those three things, then you just aren't going to reach your full potential. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this guy named Dave Evans, who was a early employee at Apple, co-founder of Electronic Arts, uh, New York Times bestselling author. He was on the show a while back. And one of the things we talked about was applying design principles to life, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he talked about, one of the principles that they came up with in the early days of, of Apple, and even before that, was something you just mentioned, which was problem finding, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's finding the right problem to ask questions about, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think we do a good enough job uh, uh, with that. I mean, we have so many distractions that people sum up as problems, but they're not really. So how would you advise someone to begin kind of pulling back the veil of distraction to open themselves up to identifying or finding the right problem, whatever it might be that they're facing, whether it's at home, abroad, in their company, whatever. Passion. You've, you have to find something that you're passionate about in order to be able to have the intellectual honesty required to find problems and, and solve them. So finding problems usually usually means that you're pointing at yourself to say, ooh, I didn't do that right. I need to study this. I need to work harder on that. And that requires a intellectual honesty that I think our, our society is losing. We, we no longer look for the person who... We look at, at failure as, as not necessarily a good thing. And there's all kinds of books and podcasts and things where you, know, you have these people speaking, pontificating really about how failure is so great. But then we see somebody who's failing... And, and, and not re not failing at the same thing over and over, but they're failing because they're innovating and they're learning the, the ways not to do something. And we say, ah, oh, well, clearly they're a loser or they're a bad investment. Uh, we don't... We don't w the words that we are saying as a society about failure are not actually translating to the, the real world. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Uh, I've been, you know, fortunate enough to attend top university in the world. I have been fortunate enough to go to, you know, be a special operator, go to the CIA, do all these different things. But a lot of that is because of the privilege that I was given. Now, let, I'm, you know, I don't want to sit here and talk about, you know, whether or not there's racial privilege or something like that. The ultimate privilege is good parenting, and I had really good parents. Uh, and so you give me somebody who has really good parent, you know, really good upbringing, and but no access to resources. Give me somebody else who has all the access to resources, but their parents were checked out, and I'll take the one who who had the good parenting. Totally. But let's let's step that back even a little bit more. There are so many people in this country who come from socioeconomically depressed areas. You know, they come from really bad parenting and they have been on their own since they were 14 years old, working two jobs to try to make ends meet, trying to figure out where they're going to sleep tonight, you know, where they're going to get food, much less like, you know, not even, not even having 
you know, access to the internet or, or electronic devices, and they manage to graduate high school with C's. And we look at that person and we say, oh, we're not going to let them into the top universities because they only graduated with C's. Well, you give me a, a kid who comes from a socioeconomically depressed area who's been on their own since they're 14 years old and managed to graduate high school with C's. I'll take that person over the kid, over the rich kid who, you know, had every possible opportunity and managed to graduate with B's and can pay full tuition. I'll, I'll take that other person all day long mm -hmm. because they're creative, they're curious, they're resourceful, and they know how to identify and solve problems. And that is a, is a currency that you really, you just kind of can't teach. It seems totally. like people either have it or they don't. I think that that's a huge lesson. I think that it's actually one of the key identifiers of of the the grit gap. You know, the reason why there's not a lot of grit today, especially in the Western civilization, is because because parents, as to your point, haven't brought their kids up to be gritty. I think I don't I don't think you're born with grit. I think it's something that you learn through experience, through having to do hard and challenging things. And they don't have to be like, they don't necessarily have to be walking a mile and a half through a Montana winter snow. <laughs> I mean, it could be, you know, like my kids, I got four kids. They're all in elementary school or junior high. You forgot to do your homework? Too bad. You're going to get a zero. Lesson learned, you know? Right. And as much as it pains to see your kids suffer, like, you know, that if you, stepped in and did something for them to to solve that problem, you would actually be doing a disservice because they don't have to be resourceful. They're not forced to think creatively. They don't have that bad memory etched into their mind. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's pride is the original sin, right? You end up with parents who are looking at their children as a reflection of themselves. And so... They can't ever have have their child have a scuff mark on them because then that might reflect on them, which would make me ask those parents, what's wrong with your own self-esteem that yeah. you you don't understand that your job is to is to raise and release this child, not to not to bring the child up in such a cushy environment that, yeah, maybe their childhood is great, but the rest of their life is going to suck. Yeah, totally. You talk a lot about your par your parents being awesome and being big influences in your life. What were some other other than forcing you to walk through the the Montana winter uh, <laughs> to school? What were some other ways they breathed life into your potential? So uh, I started Boy Scouts, and you know, Boy Scouts in Montana is uh, pretty fun as well. Uh, there's lot lots to do. But they, they made sure that the influences in my life were always people that they would want influencing me. So if I had a friend who they didn't think the parents were good influences, I couldn't go over to that friend's house. That friend could come over to mine, but I couldn't go over to theirs. And I didn't really understand that when I was young. It, you know, to me, it was, you know, I was, I was being oppressed by my parents, right? <laughs> um, but, but really, it, it was such a, a service. And, and they did that at their own inconvenience. You know, it's, not con it, it's very convenient to go drop your kid off at somebody else's house and say, hey, you know, good luck, you know, free childcare. They didn't have to 
they didn't have to do that. And instead they said, no, you know, these, these folks are maybe not the best, uh, best influence on our son. So we're going to, we are going to be the ones that are going to be inconvenienced and, and, and allow all the kids to come over to our house. And, and that is, uh, that is just something they were so disciplined about all through, uh, all through my upbringing. So when they, they put me in a boy scout troop, it was okay, which one has the best leadership and, I had this this scoutmaster named Doug O'Donnell who uh, took the exact same approach as my parents, and it, and but of course it was Boy Scouts, so it was like doubled down on, and uh, and he made sure that we learned, and he didn't he didn't solve problems for us that he thought that we could solve for our, ourselves, and then there were youth pastors, there were actual pastors, there were so many different people that they surrounded me with. So it wasn't just coming from my family. It was coming from everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, which, which really gave me a bit of a utopian view of the world, of course, until I left. Yeah. And you, you did leave you, you, you know, you obviously you finished high school and went off. Did you go to college? You, you did go to college. No, I went straight into the air force. You went straight into the air. Force. I went, yeah, I did a lot of college while I was in the air force. Okay. Uh, but but no, I went straight to college or straight to the Air Force. Uh, not the uh, not the most popular decision, <laughs> but it was definitely one. Again, having great parents that they supported me in, and yeah, I went off and uh, decided I wanted to be at, a PJ, and that's what I did. At what point did you know that that was what you were going to do initially? Uh, before I even went into the Air Force, I went in the Air Force specifically to join pararescue and went in on a contract on a, on a pararescue contract. Uh, it's funny. They, my dad tells a story of him going into the recruiting office with me and the recruiter said, you know, you got a, a 90% failure rate at, at pararescue selection. So 90% chance you are not going to make it, Nick. And I was like, okay, well that might apply to other people. It doesn't apply to me. <laughs> and uh, of course my dad was just, you know, head in his hands. Oh my gosh, I can't believe my son is saying these things. Uh, but I was just that confident that that's what I was going to go do. So the recruiter said, okay, well, in order for you to get this contract, you have to pick another job to fall back on. And I, I didn't do it. I said, no, no possible way. Uh, I'm not going to make it. Maybe other people don't, but I, I'm going to. And so finally I said, all right, well, just put me down for whatever, like a mechanic or something. And uh, my dad was just like, "Oh no, I, I did, oh, this is just not good." Uh, but sure enough, I, I you know went in specifically for pararescue. Uh, was fortunate enough to make it through that program, and uh, was very very pleased with my experience. Yeah, there's a there's a quote that uh, I read from an old article. Actually, it wasn't about you; it was about another PJ. But they quoted you in it. And, and it said, um, the quote is, you need to be able to deal with all situations between the top of Mount Everest and 130 feet below the ocean. And in all environments, all weather conditions, all light conditions, and you need to be able to deal with them in a way that mitigates risk to the extent that you will live through those missions because you know, there's nobody c- going to come get a PJ if a PJ is down, you know? So Absolutely. I'm, so what what drew you to that kind of an extreme initially? Well, I had started in high school as a ski patroller at, uh, at Red Lodge Mountain. And I did that on the weekends while I was in high school. And uh, actually kind of had to... I didn't know how to ski. So I figured out how to... I, I mean, I, I literally 
just got on some skis and got on the chairlift and started following these guys down the mountain, which I'm sure was gave them a great laugh. Uh, didn't have a, a single lesson, didn't know what I was doing at all, just went and did. And that's, yeah, you know, I, I really learned to like the aspect of, of, of helping people out of bad situations as a ski patrol, obviously a little, a little more benign, uh, in that environment. Uh, but that is what led me to say, Oh, wait a minute, I want to go do something like this at a, at a higher level. And originally I wanted to be a corpsman for the SEAL teams. But when I was at the Navy recruiter, there was an old SEAL who was there, you know, one of those old guys who just kind of comes and hangs around to talk to the young bucks. And, and he was the first one who told me about pararescue. So I he was like, you know, you should, you should consider pararescue. And I had no idea what that was. Went and talked to the Air Force recruiter. You know, he, he talked to me about it a little bit, told my parents. My mom goes out and finds these, uh, these brochures and things. Uh, it turns out the guy on the front cover and ended up being my supervisor later. Uh, but he, he, you know, they were able to show me, hey, these things that you wanted to do in the SEAL teams, like you'll be doing those every day as a pararescue. And so I, I really liked the sound of that. And, uh, so that's what I signed up for. What did it teach you about your physical limitations? I mean, I, I read a little bit about the training, um, and 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 I remember when I had Brian Dickinson on, he basically summed up the training is that they pretty much try to drown you uh, and uh, and then bring you back. But you know, so what did you learn about testing your own physical limitations during that process that you were capable of doing more than you possibly could imagine, and then. Go back to that, uh, you know, the idea of having to be creative and being forced to to be creative because this is, the situation calls for it. What did you learn about your capacity? I learned that my capacity was significantly larger than than I had previously thought, and I learned a lot about the mind body connection. So, when you are in pararescue training, uh, you you will reach muscle failure. And so when you reach muscle failure, it's not that you're quitting. It's that your muscles just cannot work anymore. They're depleted completely. Uh, there is no energy left and you've got to move forward anyway. And that's obviously where your mind comes in. So when people talk about, about special operations selections process, processes, and I don't care which one it is, you, you will get it across the board, uh, be it special forces, SEALs, PJs, combat controllers, they will all tell you that it's actually more mental than it is physical. There were people in my selection class who were far superior athletes to me, but they just, for whatever reason, they quit or, or just couldn't push through to the next thing. And, and that that's, that's very much a mental thing. And, you know, pararescue and, the SEAL teams, and I believe MARSOC, are the only pre-SCUBA qualification selection courses, right? And what, what that means is that's a really fancy way of saying you spend a whole lot of time underwater. And the great thing about the water is it's the great equalizer. So if you're really strong, that's great. Get in the pool. You're fast, get in the pool. You know, you're, you're a really smart person. That's awesome. Get in the pool. And you put everybody in the water and you start taking their air away and suddenly the playing field is, is evened. So 
So what, what happens in the water is it really has nothing to do with your physical capability. Yes, of course, you have to, you have to be able to perform at a high level, but being able to perform physically at a high level does not make one unique, especially in the, in the current culture. Uh, well, maybe it does in the, the current generation, but not in my generation. So being able to keep your mind under control while performing physically at a high level, that does make you unique. Mm-hmm. And there really seemed to be two types of people in selection. There were the people that when you started taking their air away by making them execute missions underwater without being able to breathe, they focused on the fact that they couldn't breathe as opposed to executing the mission. And then there were the other people, and these are the ones who make it through, who focus on accomplishing the mission at all cost. And they, they accomplish that mission, whatever it is, tying knots underwater, bobbing up and down with your, you know, drown proofing with your hands and feet tied. They accomplish that mission despite the limitation of not being able to breathe. Mm. So for some of those folks, the limitation was just that. It was a limitation. And for others, the limitation became a motivation to perform at a higher level. So how did you train your mind? How did you slow down your mind to, to control your amygdala, basically, so it's not freaking out and yelling at you when you're in the process of drowning? I had no idea. <laughs> to be completely honest, I had no idea. I just did. Okay. Uh, there was no high level, you know, Wim Hof breathing happening. It was, this is what I'm being told to do. And that is what I'm going to do or die. Hmm. And that was, and so it's, it's a mindset and you can have all of the, you know, proper breathing training and training and all that. And if your mind is not in the right place, if you are not in a do in, in a accomplish at all costs mindset, you're still not going to make it. But you take some you know, 19-year-old kid with no training at all who can barely swim, and, but their mind is in the right place, and they will move mountains. So you served as a PJ for uh, 11 years, right? Right. 10 years in the active duty, one year in the reserves. Okay. And then you, during that time, you also completed uh, education at Harvard? So no, I'm actually currently uh, in a program at Harvard. Okay. Uh, and no, I completed education at the you know community college of the Air Force, American yeah. Military University, IICTS, kind of anywhere anywhere I could I could yeah. uh, do classes while I was on deployment. I uh, actually submitted papers over a, a satellite communications link uh, <laughs> because it was the only way sometimes to get it through. Uh, so, but yeah, I did that while I was in the Air Force. So so you're you're. Your total military service was uh, eleven years, and then you went and consulted a little bit for you know in- investment banks, I guess, in New York. And then, like, uh, what's his name, Al Pacino came recruiting you, is what I hear. You know? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I was uh, from the farm. Know, tending, I was tending bar, and you know, he came in and uh, and, and I was like, "Hey, you're Al Pacino." He's like, "Well, actually, I work for the CIA." I <laughs> uh, know it's. Uh, it, it, it's much less sexy of a process than that. This was uh, uh, when I was doing some work in the um, the private personnel recovery work for some of these investment banks. Uh, I kind of got lucky, but also, you know, they say you make your own luck. 
uh, had the right contacts to get a bunch of people out of Lebanon in 2006 when the Israelis and Hezbollah decided to have their little party. So I got first uh, really put together the plan and put the the uh, contacts together to get the first 23 people out of out of Lebanon. And that got me noticed as somebody who could get things done outside of the outside of the military structure, because it's one thing to be, you know, a JSOC guy or something who can get all these things done when you're inside the military structure or SOCOM guy, because you, you've got drones, mm-hmm. you've got this entire department of defense standing behind you, getting things done versus when you're a civilian, you're on your own. So it's all about where your connections are, uh, and then things that you can do in the military, like pay people off, um, or at the agency, you cannot do as a civilian. So now you've got to do all that stuff within the letter of the law. And that, that is, that, that is, is a difficult playing field, but I managed to do it in Lebanon, got a bunch of people out and that got me, I think some attention, uh, from from various agencies, and uh, just got a call and said, "Hey, uh, we've got this thing that we're trying to do. Uh, we'd like you to come participate in it." So, how did you go about building a network and connections, and and maintaining those relationships to have enough credence and and credibility and trust to to call those people and say, "Hey, you know, we need those people out of Lebanon." How, how did you do that, especially without? the bureaucratic structure of the military behind you? Uh, straight divine intervention. It, it, it happens to me a lot. I, I, make the, I make the joke that I collect people. Mm. And for not a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of talent, one of the talents I do have is being able to figure out who, who is worth the time and has value and who is not. Uh, and it's something I experience right now. There's a lot of people who want to be involved in deliver fund or they say they do but at the end of the day all they want to do is is talk to the former agency guy and they want to be able to say that they're friends with this former agency guy mm-hmm. and they're not bringing any value and and they they're not really that interested in the mission and we have other people who I cannot talk to for over a year and I can call them and say hey uh, we you know we need some help this is what we've got going on and they will be there and yet the other person who just wants to kind of see the monkey dance on the stage uh, will text me and call me constantly, but never actually bring any real value. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you're looking at who within these overseas markets will, will actually help, uh, it, there's not that many. So you just you just separate the wheat from the chaff real fast and you you figure out you know who you're going to invest time in. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call.
You know, it's really interesting. One of the things I've been doing this podcast for, you know, two years plus at this point. And one of the things that's really fascinating, and it's really the, the, the why it's called the Impact Entrepreneur Show, it's not because people are making an impact in necessarily what they're doing, such as with Deliver Fund, but it's more about how they've responded to the various impact moments in their life, the various uh, trajectory-changing things, life-altering things that, that have led them to the point where they are now having at the platform such as Deliver Fund, where you're having the impact. And so when you when you think about like your childhood, you've got your parents and, and you've got your scoutmaster and you've got the other influences there. And then you have your career as a PJ and all of the influences in the community around that. And then you have your you go from that to your experience as a private human recovery specialist for, you know, probably hedge fund people that that have ransoms on their heads you know and then and then from there the last stop before deliver fund is the CIA and all of this stuff all of the stuff that you've had your whole entire life is leading up to deliver fund it's equipping you to do what you're you're called to do and and we're going to skip your time in the CIA, and we're going to go into the to, and you can you can do whatever you want. You can talk about how the CIA equipped you for this final adventure or this next adventure, anyway. But one of the quotes that I read about you uh, that I think speaks to your character is, "Man, you have had such a great career, right? You've had like." In many ways, like a dream career where people could do what you've done for the rest of their lives and and be super satisfied um, and feel very elevated, right? You've had the career as the PJ, the personal recovery specialist, the CIA operative, you know, all of these really sexy titles, right? And then there's this this quote that it actually was an article you wrote. Actually, it wasn't a quote; it was an article you wrote. There comes a time in every person's life. When they are forced with the decision, pursue a path strewn with seemingly insurmountable obstacles that changes the world or pursue relative safety and comfort. God presents each of us with, his, with this choice and promises to resource, to resource and provide for our journey regardless of which path we choose. He encourages us, however, to choose the hard, brave thing and in doing such, rewards us intangibly. Man. That holy smokes! I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, inspired. Um, it was from a Huffington Post article you wrote. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, a while back. But um, but man, that that I think, regardless of one's faith, if they're listening to this, that message should inspire them. I believe that um, we are all forged. That a key is forged within us, and that key is. Uh, if we use it, if we take hold of it, if we possess it and we control it, we'll unlock all of our God-given potential and we can truly have the impact that we're designed, that we're created to have in the world, regardless of title, regardless of wealth and riches, regardless of status. And so you, being the quote-unquote evil crusher that you are, you left all of this 
this glamorous stuff, right? The stuff that literally movies are made of behind so that you could become a husband and a father, but also so that you could really save lives and do it using everything that you've learned along the way from from the moment that your parents forced you to walk outside in the snow to school for a mile and a half to the your last operation as a CIA operative everything has equipped you for this moment so so why did you do it um what ultimately was the the trigger that you that was like you know what i have to do this and maybe you can, in that process of answering that question, tell us what Deliver Fund is and why it's different and all that stuff. So the reason, uh, well, first, you, you know, thank you for that. Those were some very kind words. And I'll tell you, nothing in the U.S. government is as glamorous as you think. Uh, it's not the movies, not even close. And there is no red door of competence where you walk behind it and everybody's Jason Bourne. Uh, the, the folks that I had the pleasure of serving with fit the, do, the population distribution curve like any other population. And no matter high, how highly selected you get a population, you're always going to have kind of the people who slip through. Uh, but there are incredibly brave uh, men and women who are out there right now deployed overseas, uh, you know, working to support those deployed overseas. Uh, in combat zones who are you know providing the blanket of freedom that we can that we can hide under to have this very conversation and they're people we can't expect them to be perfect uh, but i was always looking for not necessarily what's the next thing but the next rung on the ladder the next problem to solve and when i was at pj i thought i'm going to be a pararescueman until they kick me out but then I got in touch with some agency guys uh, in, uh, in uh, well, overseas when I was a PJ. They were working around some stuff that we were doing. And I was like, ooh, that's really interesting. I'm going to go do that. And it, it, it's funny now knowing what I know to say that, you know, I, I decided I'm going to go join the CIA because that's a load of crap. Uh, the CIA, uh, by their own admission, uh, so you know, I'm not saying anything classified, uh, they select 1% of the people who apply, uh, the people that they ask to apply. Uh, it's an insanely competitive program. And I don't know what those shiny rocks are. I don't know why they, why they picked me and not some friends of mine who are far better than I am, but, but they did. and. But I had decided that, ooh, I'm going to go try this whole CIA thing. And so I did that. And it took significantly longer than I thought. But I, And then once I was at CIA, it was, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to stay here until they kick me out. And, but then, you know, life circumstances happen. And then it was, okay, well, you know, I, I need to make some adjustments in my own life for the benefit of my children. But also, there's this other thing out there. There's this other problem that's not being solved. And, and I think I've got a decent shot at solving it. And so it's going to be scary. It's going to give me less financial security than I've ever had in my life. It's going to give me less uh, job security because 
really the only model, the only solution for it is in a nonprofit. And I have absolutely no idea what that means as a nonprofit. I do now, but I didn't back then. Uh, I've got to raise money. No idea how to do that. Uh, and so it was just, it was the, it kind of brings me back to the same mindset as pararescue selection. It was, you just go do. And you have the humility to realize when you made mistakes, you pivot your model based on what you learned from those failures and those mistakes. And you put your head down and you just keep pressing forward. And here we are three and a half years later, uh, you know, coming into our fourth year. We're going to close this year over seven figures in, in funding. Uh, we, we have incredibly phenomenal people in our organization. You know, I built this foundation and then they put a rocket on it and have taken it to a whole other level. Uh, we have uh, you know, just been blessed with people and resources over and over and over. And when people ask me, how do you know this is what, what God wants you to do? I just simply point to Deliver Fund and say, well, look, it's working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's working incredibly well. And our, our, our impact on human trafficking markets has been absolutely devastating. I mean, we, we, did, our first, we did our first mission uh, and, and it took us almost a month. It, it, was, it was expensive. It was really difficult. Uh, and and we, we got our first human trafficker. Law enforcement arrested him. Uh, three victims were freed. One of them was pregnant, was an underage girl who was pregnant. Uh, and another one of them was mentally handicapped. So that was just a, for us, that was a home run. Now we have that happening almost weekly. Uh, one of our analysts, uh, Kara Smith, who is this like huge brain, she was just doing operations with a law enforcement uh, agency in Houston. And thanks in large part to her work, working with the law enforcement officers, they arrested 10 human traffickers in a week. Most departments don't arrest 10 human traffickers in an entire year, and they did it in a week. And the week before that, uh, she was working with Homeland Security, and she ended up uh, finding a trafficking victim whose trafficker was using that victim's had abducted that victim's four month old baby and was was threatening to harm the baby if the girl didn't do what he wanted. Uh, and before that, one of our analysts, Chris, was uh, got this huge win in in northern Texas. Uh, where it unraveled an entire human trafficking ring that stretched all the way to, I believe it was Virginia, from from Dallas. And then before that, George, one of my other uh, analysts, who is just a a force of nature in himself, he took down the two largest human trafficking rings in the desert southwest almost by himself over an 18-month period, to the point now that law enforcement officers here in the Albuquerque area are actually having a hard time finding um, high-level human traffickers. So to think that we started with like, you know, Nick selling some stuff in order to get the money to, to get our first computer programs and, you know, pulling money out of my retirement account and doing these different things to, to try to, you know, piecemeal it and shoehorn it together, but just kept pressing forward to now 
we're a real sustainable organization that's mm-hmm. getting more wins than we can than we can even really keep track of. I mean, I, I don't. Frankly, we we don't think about human trafficking enough. I I, I don't. You know, I'm a I'm a civilian. I'm a you know entrepreneur. I'm I'm working. I've got four kids, and and I don't think about it because it's like not in front of me, but it's happening like all around me, basically. You know, yes. without without really seeing it because it really is a slavery market. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this article that was written about Deliver Fund, and the guy opens up. He paints this picture in this article. Uh, it was like Super Bowl Sunday. And you know you've got the Super Bowl going going off. You've got all of the celebration and the tailgating and and all of that stuff happening. And then in a small little church located nearby, you've got you guys with your remote setup or whatever, and you're hunting mm-hmm. for these these people. This is the bu- busiest human trafficking day of the year, and you guys are trying to close up. Uh, and save people and rescue people from from the torture that they are experiencing while hundreds of thousands of people are in the stadium celebrating and even more millions are watching at home and and the only time we think about it really is when there's the celebrity promotional thing where you've got musicians and artists with the red x on their hand right and then and then you know and then something else comes along um so what can we do to raise more awareness? And maybe you can tell a little bit about why people should pay attention to Deliver Fund because you guys have a 100% conviction rate of the human traffickers that you've caught and are prosecuted. And you're doing things in ways that have never been done before. So maybe you can elaborate on why people should pay attention. It's simple. You, we like to focus on the victims within human trafficking because ultimately that's the mission, right? We we want to make it so there are no victims. Okay, so that's that's prevention. But then we also want to make it so that the, the victims that are already caught up in the life of human trafficking can can get what they need and get the room that they need in order to heal and get the resources and all that. Okay, that's great. However, why do we have human trafficking victims? Why are we trying to prevent it? Well, it's because we have a human trafficker. That is the common denominator in the equation. If you remove the human trafficker, the whole equation falls apart. You cannot have a human trafficking victim if you do not have a human trafficker. Therefore, that is the root and the cause of human trafficking. And so we, that is where we need to focus. And you put a human trafficker in jail and you have prevented him from preying on, on the victims that he would prey on in the future. You have, uh, you, you may not have, have rescued the girl. I love it when you have organizations like we rescue girls. No, you don't. If you don't have a badge and a gun, you're not rescuing girls. Uh, you know, the cops rescue girls uh, because they're the only ones with the authority of the state to be able to go out and and you know and get those girls out of those uh, you know out of those situations sometimes forcibly and sometimes that is the absolute best thing that can happen to the girl you know at Deliver Fund I mean we know as much about kicking doors and doing that kind of work as as anybody alive yet we never really leave our keyboards because 
if, if you have to go out on the street, you know, we, we do a little bit go out on the street, um, and, uh, and do some collection, but that's probably 2% of our overall mission. Our actual mission at, you know, 98% of it is sitting behind a keyboard. And if you're doing it the other way around, well, then you're showing a lack of creativity, a lack of curiosity, and a lack of the ability to actually come up with effective solutions to problems. And the reason that it's important to focus on what we're doing at Deliver Fund is because it's the only scalable solution. So the more cases we do at Deliver Fund, the cheaper it gets. Versus if you have to put people on airplanes and you know get your little YouTube videos and hey, we did fake sting operations, uh, you know, you that's not scalable. That that require that doesn't you know, that requires more and more and more people versus at Deliver Fund, we take a tech-centric approach and we have technologies that nobody else in the world has. Uh, in the NGO space, there's obviously government um, governments that have them, but in the NGO space, nobody else has what we have. Um, and then you you combine the methodologies, the, the counter-terrorism methodologies that we learned at the agency, and we're applying those same methodologies using these same technologies. And the only part that we're not doing is then going and kicking the door and, you know, getting the trafficker arrested and the, you know, and the victim freed. Uh, And it's also an important point to note that human trafficking victims uh, have, have a lot of problems that they have to deal with. I mean, you think about uh, you know, it's predominantly women. Uh, it is a little bit men and boys, um, but for the most part, it's predominantly women. Uh, so I tend to refer to them as women. Uh, the the women who experience the the human trafficking market in the United States, the the human trafficking life, they experience physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, narcotics abuse. Uh, and a host of other issues that you know I, I don't have the proper letters behind my name or the to, to be able to really understand any woman who under, who experiences even one of those things has some psychological issues to deal with. So now imagine the human trafficking victim with all of the abuse that they experience, what they have to deal with. So they need room in order to heal. And if you rescue, so to speak, a human trafficking victim, but her trafficker is still out there, she's looking over her shoulder constantly. She can't get a good night's sleep. She's not going to be able to heal to the same level that a victim whose human trafficker goes away. And that's why we focus on the human trafficker, because if you rescue a victim, you just spent a lot of money. And that trafficker is still out there. He just goes and finds another girl. Mm-hmm. One of the traffickers that uh, we put away at his at his sentencing, he actually pled guilty. And at his sentencing, uh, he was bragging about how easy it was to go get girls. So great, you rescued a girl. Well, you actually just made the problem worse because now that trafficker is going to go get another girl. So you actually created uh, an expansion of the market. And we, I get people telling me all the time that, you know, I, I shouldn't be, 
I shouldn't speak about this in such a manner because speaking about this as a market and and how you know doing good can actually be can actually expand that market, you know, well, well, their heart is in the right place. I disagree. If your heart was in the right place, you would be doing the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is realizing that you're not properly equipped to actually get in the fight. So you need to support those who do. Mm-hmm. Here's a good example. At Deliver Fund, we don't do victim services. We transport victims for law enforcement. Uh, we know a lot about how to do that within the legal structure. Uh, we've done that multiple times for many jurisdictions uh, to include you know, Homeland Security itself. And, but, but, but outside of that, we don't provide victim services. Why? Because I'm not appropriately trained or equipped in order to do that. And, but when it comes to hunting human traffickers, I'll go toe to toe with anybody in the world. Uh, just nothing but a laptop and a Wi Fi signal. Let's go find a human trafficker because that is what my team and I are properly trained and equipped to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, you've, you've got the skill set and you've got the, the team of people. Alongside you with the skill set, both in special operations and in the analyzing data, you've obviously got the clear passion. And then the final piece to really make things different and accelerate things is the is the technology piece, which you guys yeah. have done some incredible things and created and built some incredible things in that space. And one of one of the things you were telling me about before, which frankly, if I'm being really honest, is way over my head, but Computer visualization. I mean, I imagine like some sort of a minority report thing where you've got like, you know, different images, you know, on a screen and you're moving them along or whatever. But ex- can you explain how innovation and technology around this specific domain is helping you catch bad guys? Sure. The, you know, computer visualization stuff is really is really interesting, and and we were working with one of our uh, uh, one of our first commercial partners who has a really a a scraper that pulls in a bunch of commercial uh, sex advertising data, and then has an AI algorithm crawling through it. And they added they added some some interesting uh, computer visualization to be able to look at you know faces and and things like that, but. We are working with. Uh, we're not allowed to say who yet. Uh, we're still under an NDA. Actually, that should be uh, coming. Uh, we should be making some type of announcement on that in the next couple of weeks. But this computer visualization is: go find me a coffee cup, and and it finds you a coffee cup. Go find me the money. You know, go find me. Go find me cash that's spread out on a bed. Um, okay, now give me the serial numbers of. All of the different bills of that cash on the bed. Uh, I mean, some really, really cool stuff. And if you look at, you know, could a person do that? Absolutely. You pull the one. You got to find the picture. Let's say it takes twenty minutes. Now you've got to, uh, you know, enhance the picture, blow the picture up. You know, actually sit there and write down the different serial numbers and denominations. I mean, a person could do that, but that's that's probably a day's work. The computers can do that in about 20 seconds. Wow. If you've already got the photo, if you don't have the photo, it takes it three to four minutes to go find the photo, index it, and then 
and then do that work in about 20 seconds. So technology, you know, what is technology? Technology is merely a medium that we use to scale human capability. And that's why we invest so heavily in, in technology. You know, we uh, have donors asking us, what, you know, where's the money go? Major majority of it goes to technology because servers are really expensive. These programs are expensive. You know, people can't be writing programs for free. Uh, they, they're doing this work. And we then take those technologies and point them. You know, the, the, the technology for the most part is a black box, right? The output is going to be determined by the input. And so we just use human trafficking as the, as the input. And, and that is what allows us to do so much with so little. If you put a, a person or say three people on an airplane to go do a human trafficking, you know, fake sting operation or something like that, and they, they arrest a trafficker, okay, that, that's great. And, and that's good work. It's a very, very archaic uh, and uncreative way to do things. You take one person with the with the uh, the brain power and the know how. You put them behind a computer and you give them cyber tools, and that person will get three to six human traffickers arrested in the next ten hours hmm. without ever going anywhere and incurring those expenses. Now scale that out. You can. With just one person, you can push out a couple of hundred human trafficking intelligence reports to law enforcement who already exist. And that's the thing. There's already law enforcement officers with badges and guns and state authority there. They just need to know what it is they should be looking at. And eventually, we need the politicians to tell them we want you to focus on this problem and here's the funding for it. Right now you have politicians telling them, go fight human trafficking, but not giving them any funding to do it or any more people. So they're supposed to go do narcotics cases, homicide cases, property theft cases. Oh yeah, and human trafficking if they can get around to it. So, so the fighting human trafficking within law enforcement becomes political expediency. So if you're a politician listening to this, my question to you is you may have given a mandate to go fight human trafficking. But if you didn't follow that up with money and manpower, then it's just meaningless words. Mm. We need action against this problem. And that is what we're doing at Deliver Fund. So you will never find a picture of me with a red X on the back of my hand because that is worthless. Mm. Um, but the same, the same amount of time that somebody took to do a red X and post it on Instagram, we got an actual human trafficker arrested and their victims, multiple victims freed, uh, you know, and given the space they need to be able to heal. That's now so I'm not saying that awareness isn't important. It is as long as the awareness is followed up by action. Our problem is that people put a red X on the back of their hand and then that's all they do. Mm -hmm. So, so what I would like to see is a world where we put a red X on our hand after donating to an organization that is fighting this work, that is doing this work every single day. We put a red X on our hand after volunteering to go down to the homeless shelter and talk to the homeless youth 
about their exposure to human trafficking, but only after we spent our nights and weekends reading the books and actually getting educated on this issue, not watching the movie Taken and thinking we know something about human trafficking because that's not what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, We put the red X on our hand after after creating a specific prayer group within our church where what we do is get together uh, into our little prayer war room and we pray over the people who are engaged in this fight and the victims who are in it. We pray for justice every single week. So I don't have a problem with a red X as long as that red X gets put on your hand after you have taken action. If all you do is put the red X on your hand and go wash it off because you're part of the problem. Speaking of action, is there is there a place on the website directly where people can donate if they want? Absolutely. You can go to deliverfund.org forward slash donate. Uh, you can donate through, uh, through Facebook, uh, which is a, a, a great platform for raising money. And you can find us on all of the social media platforms at... Deliver Fund, and you can find me personally at Deliver Fund Nick. And maybe we can um, figure out a way when this airs to to generate um, you know buzz around funding it, uh, around creating some sort of a donation around the airing of this episode, so that oh, people that'd be great. Listen, can so I'll, I'll think about how to do that. But as oh, we, that'd be great. Thank you. That's yeah, uh, absolutely. That's, that's kind of you. I really yeah. appreciate that. As we as we begin to wrap up the, the conversation, because uh, you have bad guys to go catch, and I have lies to destroy, uh, I, I conclude every conversation with three the same three questions for every single guest. And the first is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess. So obviously you're pretty freaking skilled. I mean, you know, having seen that video, I mean, well, thank you, but. Uh, but anyway, you've got a lot of skill sets. But if you could pick any one of them and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Ooh, interesting. So I would say one of my favorite skill sets is jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. Uh, I loved halo jumps as a, as a PJ because you're basically flying. So I would say turning that into the ability to actually fly without the parachute or the airplane. I love. Have you ever done wingsuit stuff? I haven't. I haven't. I would love to, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's a it's a time issue. Plus, I live at at high altitude, so yeah, that's not going to go real well. <laughs> what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing what we're truly capable of? The first is that we're not good enough, or we don't we don't deserve because we do, or God wouldn't have made us. That's it, 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 you know, God wouldn't have made us. Christ wouldn't have died for us. So we definitely do. We are good enough and we do deserve. Um, the second biggest lie we tell ourselves is that we deserve. Uh, I think the word deserve is the most dangerous word in the English language, hmm. uh, really in any language uh, uh, under, by that definition, it is, incredibly toxic when we think we deserve something. Well, so-and-so has a new car and I work harder, so I deserve a new car too. You know, it's so the the lie that we deserve something when really we deserve nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a big one. And mm-hmm. then the third is that we can't. And so we don't even try. 
I have a, a guy I served with who started a company and he gave it a good try for two or three years. And the company, I believe just folded and he was getting some, some flack from some other guys that we served with uh, about, ah, you know, he, he didn't pull it off. And I'm like, you know, that could be me tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, you know, he tried and he got an incredible education and I have no doubt that he will come back and, and he will try again and he may fail again, but he'll get farther down the path. And so the, the, I can't, uh, is really, I won't, you know, I raised my son. I, he's not allowed to say I can't in my house. Hmm. Uh, that gets him nowhere. He can say, I need help. Uh, I, I, I don't know how, uh, or I won't do this, but I can't is, is the, definitely the third biggest lie that we tell ourselves. Mm, I love that, man. You know, it's, it's so true. I think that um, one of my favorite, uh, recently, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is when, when Jesus heals the guy or he, he's approaching the disabled man outside of the healing waters of some, you know, uh, someplace, right? What it's called. Anyway, and the guy says, hey, why, why aren't you over there in the healing waters? He said, well, I'm waiting for someone to, to carry me, you know? And Jesus says to him, pick up your mat and walk, right? So he goes so far as to like heal him, but he says, you have to get up and walk the rest of the way, right? Yes, and- absolutely. I fully believe that God, God resources our actions. Uh, my, I, I'm very fortunate in that I have uh, a pastor who uh, is probably one of the best Bible teachers alive and uh, a guy named Skip Heitzig. And he says, you know, that uh, that too many people are just waiting around saying, well, I'm just, I'm just waiting on God. Well, every person that, that Jesus called was doing something mm-hmm. when he called them. Yeah. So, so go do something yeah. and, uh, and, and go do that with all your heart, mind, and soul. And, and it will be, it will be resource. Mm-hmm. Word. Well, last question, my man, is comes from the title of a book, and it, it has to do with the art form that you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, before we hit record. The title of the book is "How Will You Measure Your Life?" But the question is, if you were to leave instructions, it's a hundred years from now, and you were to leave some instructions for a composer to compose a piece of music. That would answer that question: How will you measure your life? What would the genre be? What elements would you want in it? What would the story to be told in musical form? Ah, uh, you know, I think it's already been written. Hmm. Uh, there is a uh, there's a group uh, a, a group out there called. Um, uh, of course, it's it's going to escape me now. Called beautiful eulogy. Are you familiar with them? No. Highly, highly recommend uh, you listen to them. But they have they have one of their one of their songs is uh, is called if, uh, and it's essentially all how the word if is an incredibly damaging word because what if, and and that is ultimately win or lose. I don't want to wonder too much. You always will to an extent, but I don't want to wonder too much. What if, 
there is no, there is no looking at, I, I don't look at my life and say, well, what if I would have done that? I can, I can look at, I can look at mistakes I've made and say, well, if I would have done things differently, I understand how I wouldn't have ended up in this position or that position, or, you know, maybe if I would have wore the thicker wetsuit, I wouldn't have got hypothermic on that dive as a PJ, you know, things like that. But, but for the most part, I don't want to say, well, what if I would have pursued that calling? I don't want to be one of those who has to, who has to wonder that. And so I would say, uh, check out uh, beautiful eulogies album worthy and check out their song. If. Okay, right on. Well, Nick, we will do that. Thank you so much for joining the audience and sharing your powerful story as well as the powerful work that uh, Deliver Fund is doing. One other question real quick. I just was just noticing the logo, um, the Deliver Fund logo behind you. What's the story behind that? It's a very intriguing logo. Right. So the, the Manila... Uh, there, there's two meanings. Uh, so, uh, because, uh, we're men of faith, I'll give you the second one as well. But the first one is the Manila, uh, is what the African warlords who were conquering villages and selling the, uh, their tribal members to the white slave traders to bring them over to America. Uh, they, they used a currency called the Manila and they didn't recognize pounds sterling. And so, these manilas, which were the tribal currency, actually became known as slave currency. And at one point, you could actually trade them on the floor at, at Lloyd's, which is one of the original the original exchanges. Wow. So yeah, so that's why uh, we've got the manila is because we take a market-based approach to fighting human trafficking. Uh, we don't just go after traffickers. We don't just help law enforcement rescue victims. We do everything from trying to help take down Backpage to uh, just you know, messing with their money. I mean, we're just creating chaos within the, within the human trafficking markets. And uh, obviously the blood streak, there are so many people who are fighting human trafficking before us. Uh, that's to you know, represent their efforts. So we stand on the shoulders of giants like William Wilberforce, like, um, you, you know, Gary, uh, Gary Hagan at IJM, so many others. And uh, also that red line is the universal symbol for stop. That's, that is the secular meaning. You want to know the other meaning? Sure. Um, Christ said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Mm-hmm. What, is, oh, yeah. what is that shape That's the look omega. like? It's omega. That's the Omega. And we, um, before, without, without him shedding his blood for us, we would be slaves to sin. Mm. Uh, and human trafficking is caused by sin. Mm. And so obviously Christ shed his blood for us, the red streak, in order to bring an end to sin. Uh, in fact, that is the explanation behind the t-shirt you can find on our website where it says slavery, it is finished. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely excited about all of this. You, you know, you mentioned the word passion earlier in our conversation. Do you know what the etymological origin of the word passion is and what its real meaning is? I, I don't. It means the willingness to sacrifice. Oh, wow. Very cool. Well, I am, uh, I am definitely going to study that. Um, the it's, way Deliver Fund got its name is the original biblical Greek for rescue uh, translates to deliver. Hmm. And, uh, and all we had to do was take the capabilities we had and fund it. 
Well, my man, this has been uh, an incredible conversation, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and helping uh, promote the Deliver Fund message and uh, collaborating more in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you to this week's guest, and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.